Hello, hello, and welcome to uh, another Hometown Daily News Show, Season 2, Episode 126, for May 6th, 2023. Get paid to toot. And here's a quick rundown of the articles that we'll be talking about tonight. An evil wizard casts a spell. A pizza oven adds value. A whistleblower wins an award. An AI takes some jobs. A Tesla takes some time to charge. A Fortnite mode for eSports Olympics. A fruit stand in all Walmarts. A danger of risk aversion. A bunch of lost mail is handled. And a game about bugs is called... Killbug. Let's get into tonight's articles. Hello, hello. I am Marwat. That is hometown.com. And no, it's not. Now it's hometown.com. <laughs> and up there is the AI that makes all of this possible. No, well, no, you uh, work on your Terminator body. I keep everything running and uh, I sleep with one eye open just in case you actually figure out how to make your Terminator body. But other than that, don't worry, you say I hi? haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> uh, good evening, hometown citizens. Yay. Oh, I didn't fix the. You want to say something again? Just anything. Just sure. I'll just uh, test uh, the visualizer there. Yeah, there you go. Thanks. Yeah. So it's matching now. That said, things are still uh, getting worked on here in hometown. It's kind of like potholes out there in the real world that I hear about. The, the roads are getting fixed, but it's really slow. And every once in a while, some kind of a delivery person ends up with a pizza that's jammed into one corner because they hit a pothole and makes the car jerk to one way or another. And you, you've never seen that before. Am I? I mean, that's an oddly specific issue. It sounds like it's from personal experience. I wouldn't know. Everything in hometown is perfect. Absolutely perfect. Well, we only have 10 articles. It seems like it was a really odd, slow news day uh, for it being a Friday to Saturday. We do regularly have slow news days um, and we're considering uh, making Saturday and Sunday kind of composite days where we might revisit other articles. Um, or the alternative is that <laughs> we get more news flowing into hometown. So one of those is going to happen um, probably within the next two weeks. Um, and what that amounts to is filtering out uh, non-productive news sources. You know, if they're not actually facilitating me aggregating news for me um, as mayor of hometown, then um, that the whole purpose of them being here is lost. So we'll revisit this. But a lot of the news is all about King Charles's coronation. And I've been watching a lot of things, either pro or con, and it's kind of. I, I don't know that. I just feel like, is there anything else going on? Yeah, there is always something else going on. Um, but some people are really into it, you know, um, monarchy for the win. Yay. Um, 
Yeah. So like it almost seems like it's just out of touch with I mean, right, everybody's prices are going up and their costs are going up and I don't know. It just seems like while I'm all for festivities, it just doesn't seem to really mesh with what most people's focus is on. Right. But there are a lot of very comfortable people out there still that embrace it. Um, meanwhile, certain places are basically chanting stuff it and uh, others literally uh, went to war to <laughs> break away from it. So uh, I'm not really quite sure, but we have people here in the States that are really looking forward to probably trying to become their own uh, king or not really. I don't know so many queens that are aspirational like that. It'll never happen in the United States, but we might have something that's similar. But that's for another show. Um, that said, just a quick rundown of what Omtown and Omtown Daily News show is. Omtown is a news aggregation site, funnels everything into these six main categories right here. I won't go through them all, but there's 50 channels underneath. Each one of those channels is a topic, a niche topic where news is aggregated and, and um, categorized. And if you become a citizen of hometown, then you can actually go through this and favorite your own channels, your own groups, and you get news aggregated into that. So uh, we've got more features that are coming in the next few, maybe weeks. I might have to kick it to a month, but um, we're, we're trying to get something major done um, pretty soon here to make your mobile experience much more pleasant uh won't really help much with uh the desktop side of things but um it's easier to navigate on the desktop um overall than on mobile until we're done that said let's get into today's articles because we really do only have 10 it'll be a short day um, but we can talk about it Oh, yes, that's right. Oh, and there's kind of a curse in hometown daily news show. We talk about the news and whenever pretty much 100%, the moment that I say we'll have a quick day, it turns into a two hour show. I'll fight the urge. That's right. <laughs> I think I'll, that's I'll... happened a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> so yeah, well, I'll, I will give it a try. Um, the very first article is a humor-filled action RPG, Evil Wizard, launches on May 25th for Xbox and PC, and then it'll come later to Nintendo Switch and uh, PlayStation platforms. Um, this is pretty kind of funny. Um, publisher eHome Entertainment and developer Rubber Duck Games have announced that Evil Wizard will launch on May 25th for Xbox and uh, PC. Adam Vitale, Vitale. I keep pronouncing it like that, Vital, um, but I'm not sure how he actually pronounces it. But anyway, Adam Vital um, wrote this article and uh, I've actually seen this video prior to it landing in while well, being discovered in Gnometown. And it says a release date announcement trailer details and screenshots can be found below. This is kind of like a press release kind of a thing, but I'm going to play the video, but mute it. And really, because uh, we have a podcast element to this, you 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 play as an 
a defeated evil boss wizard and your whole objective is to essentially resurge to you know being that prime evil so you get your minions you work on your spells you uh, make them do things you it says create uh, partnerships pet the dog master the elements that's what it says as you go through you solve problems you solve puzzles you beat bosses um and uh, it's it's kind of like a side scroller but it has isometric elements to it i think it'll be interesting to play it not really my style of game but i dig the the uh the new dynamic in this, which is you're the beaten down boss that lost to some other hero, um, probably Dan's gaming, um, which is another streamer. If you've never seen Dan's gaming, go watch Dan's gaming here on Twitch. Um, very popular, very prolific. Um, and his channel is he, he's the one that plays all of the heroes in all of the games, uh, in the meta bit kind of omniverse, and um it's a lot of fun and he's pretty pretty fun to watch anyway um you get to play the evil wizard and uh try and come back the quote so here is, that the is only game like that no there have been a few in history where you're like the dungeon master or you're the evil one and you're trying to you know beat all of the good guys um but they, they come and go, you know, they kind of like a flash in the pan and then they disappear. You're usually the hero because, well, that's what everybody wants. Um, but there might be a few more out there that are coming. Um, I think there's one about being a lich. I can't remember the name of it, um, but maybe I can find some and uh, we can talk about it again. I'm not sure. What is the price of this? Does it say? I don't think it has a price yet. Um, and I didn't pull it up uh, in Steam, though. But there's a link to it. And uh, like always, I throw the links into the show notes um, after the fact. Um, but I also throw it into chat. And it's in the um, ometown.showbot.tv list where you can vote on articles that you might want us to um, keep in mind when we are parsing our news. So there's no price listed in Steam yet, um, but there was a quote you wanted to mention when I interrupted you. Uh, wait, what? Oh, right. Okay, it says this unique action RPG adventure puts players in the role of a defeated final boss fresh off of a humiliating battle with a hero and hungry for revenge. That's from the press release. Um, so it, it seems like an interesting take on things. Again, it's Rubber Duck Games and publisher eHome Entertainment. Let's go on. You want to go on to the next? Sounds Let's good. Let's do that. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, I forgot that I'm going to start doing this. One second. There we go. So the next article is over in the Daily News Show. That's this show. It just happens to be also a group name over there. Uh, at hometown.com. The trendiest thing that adds value to your home and livens up your summer barbecue is a pizza oven. 
Now, not every pizza oven is going to add value to your home. Um, for instance, uh, here in hometown, we have a, a pizza oven called an Uni, O-O-N-I. Um, it can be pellet powered or gas powered, but it is highly mobile. You basically let it cool down and you can throw it in a little travel bag and go somewhere else and spark it up again. And um, it's pretty easy to get going. Whereas what they're talking about is <laughs> five to $25,000 uh, custom in place, never moving brick oven kind of pizza ovens. So wealthy homeowners installed bespoke pizza ovens with the pandemic brought socializing outdoors. Homes with pizza ovens have the potential to sell for 3.7% higher than those without, according to Zillow. Pizza ovens tend to add more value to a home than they cost, with pricier models reaching $11,000. So I can't imagine getting a pizza oven built for $11,000 near hometown, but... Well... Particularly one like in the photo. Here, let me throw let me throw this uh, URL into the chat so that if you're in chat, you can actually follow that link. But if you're watching the stream um, or watching it over on YouTube later, yeah, this is a, a <laughs> this is an outdoor. Uh, I would call it more like a a professional restaurant than this. Right, is it's a, like an outdoor kitchen. Yeah, this is I mean, just it's massive. Like, um, it's like Sam Cook, the cooking guy's uh, outdoor, outdoor setup or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you pan to the right a little bit on the camera, I think it would probably show his little flat top. And, and I say little, but it's like three feet in diameter. Uh, Jordan Pandy over at uh, businessinsider.com wrote this article. And right there, this big old brick tiled whatever here is um, the pizza oven. Yeah, this is this is on the upper scale of it. I mean, it even has uh, a gas heater, but it's the kind that doesn't do just do radiant heating. It looks like it has one of those gas tornado kind of flaming tornado things oh, that right. you see at demonstration engineering demonstrations. Um, and then, you know, five thousand dollar <laughs> multi burner custom. Uh, smoker barbecue etc so whoever this is is no slouch in in what they're offering the thing that's amazing about pizza ovens though is that it takes like how many seconds like 12 seconds for it to cook to temperature and and yeah. you're done personal size it's really quick at least on the uni i don't know about i assume this type goes the same way it's really only it, it's about a um 45 to 60 seconds and you're pretty good to go you turn it around once and you're and you're done um so you get just hot off the presses food and, and it's spectacular even in the uni um you don't have to go this route to enjoy an outdoor pizza um made to order and that's what's amazing but if you're gonna invest then Rest assured, it's going to add value to your property as long as the rest of the neighborhood isn't, I don't know, what do you, what would you say? Like Detroit. Well, 
it depends on which way you're going with it. But yeah, assuming the neighborhood is desirable, then yes, it'll probably add value. Yeah, but the otherwise. other problem with doing like a built-in pizza oven, even though that would be great to have, is that when you're selling your house and now something else is trendy, yeah, <laughs> like you gotta buy and sell within a short period of time if you're really trying to keep up with that kind of thing. Yeah, particularly if you're doing trendy stuff. But once it's in there, it's almost either forgotten. And then if you do forget it, that it decomposes over time. Everything just slowly gets worse if you don't maintain it, if you don't take care of it. So when somebody does come to buy, the property value declines because it looks horrible. Plus, not everybody's going to want that in their backyard. So you, you through feature some feature set, you might actually feature set somebody out of buying your property because they don't want to spend that extra 3.7% just because you have a, you know, a pizza oven in the backyard. It's kind of like the pool problem. You go to a house, oh, they have that's a pool. What I was thinking of. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Maintenance for a pool is through the roof. And again, that kind of goes back to the other thing, which is like, if somebody is, when somebody buys a uh, a boat, there's two times in a boat owner's life when they where they love it. It's when they buy it and when they sell it. But everything in between is just pain and suffering. Man, that's the same thing with a pool. That's the same thing with a, a huge outdoor uh, cooking facility because you have to maintain it, babysit it. Um, it. Says here in April, Zillow explored the sale premium that luxuries like pizza ovens and she sheds can bring to the closing table. According to the report, having a pizza oven in your listing description can score you extra dough. Ha ha ha. At selling time. Listings that mentioned pizza ovens delivered a 3.7% sale premium over similar homes without mention of them. The second highest premium of luxury add-on surveys by Zillow uh, behind steam ovens. Yeah. When I read that, I was like, what the hell? Steam exactly. So Zillow looked at nearly 2 million home sales in 2022 and inspected 271 features in the design terms mentioned in the listings descriptions. And the price premium was measured by comparing the home's sale price to its pre-listing Zestimate, which is actually, in many cases, right on target. Um... I, I guess if you, it says here, uh, the pizza oven could earn you an extra $12,000 on a $335,000 house that would offset even the costliest offering of pizza oven manufacturer Forno Bravo, whose residential ovens range in price from $2,795 to $11,145. Right, but we don't know if that includes that installation. Um, I mean, maybe it does, but, and well, I know that picture was probably a more elaborate one than would be needed that we saw. Yeah, um, I'll give them a call tomorrow and find out. Oh, are we getting one in hometown? <laughs> so, let you know what that put me on the spot. So I'm going to have to just bow out of this article. <laughs> well, 
While the amenity I'm was quite not happy with the uni, we don't need a <laughs> an installed uh, pizza oven in hometown. Well, you're an AI. You just get to witness me enjoying it exactly. anyway. Exactly. <laughs> Christy Jenkins, a Seattle area broker for the agency, showed her clients a $3.4 million home in Fall City, Washington, a 30-minute drive east of Seattle, with a large outdoor living space equipped with a Forno Bravo pizza oven. That's probably that picture up above. While the amenity was not on their client's list, it did add bonus points as they love to entertain, and they ended up closing on the home for $3.3 million. Because of the pizza oven? All right. Well, maybe we don't know what they were going to offer before they saw the pizza oven. Because you never yeah. offer at the asking price, so. That's true. Well, yeah. And, and then the real estate agent giggles and says, go away. Let's go on to the next article. Oh, and I still have to do this. So the next article is over in the Hatch Ideas channel. And <clears throat> SEC issues largest ever whistleblower award of $279 million. Okay. Okay, that's a pretty large award given that it's got to be a percentage of the amount in question. And I know both because I've already seen something about this again. And um, I actually looked at this article when I opened it up because it's to me, it was pretty short. But uh, what I didn't know was that this was nearly three times larger than the previous largest. And then either. look at the stats. So this is a Reuters article over at CNBC. And, and here's the, the stat that's going to blow your mind. The award is between 10 and 30% of the money collected when the monetary sanctions exceed $1 million. So is this hinting that whatever the monetary sanctions was, was close to three to six billion dollars yes okay that that silence is because i can't imagine what it is because nobody it doesn't say what it actually was that was recovered and that's what i was talking about with the percentage like i knew the number was going to have to be extremely high based on the value of that payout to the whistleblower this is amazing. And so that's why we have the name get paid to toot. <laughs> that's why the, the today's episode is titled get paid to toot because all you had to do was fly under the radar enough where you could whistle blow the federal government could, well, the sec and the, by proxy, the government, because law enforcement would be involved in this at some point when you're talking about billions of dollars of whatever it was that was getting the whistleblower treatment fly under the radar long enough so that whoever these people are, don't delete you and you will walk away with $279 million if it's close to 3 billion in recovery so we don't know the entity that was sanctioned Correct. but given the extreme 
um, penalty, I guess, or value of the sanction. Right. It. Can, I mean, isn't that a limited number of entities, perhaps? I don't know. What what entity could it be? The entirety of South America? I right, mean, that's what I mean. Like, it's not going to be some small company that's racked up that much in sanctions, or presumably not. Um, it's I'm somewhere between who it is. Yeah, not three the whistleblower, but the company. Yeah, and I had said in other previous past episodes that I think that whistleblower protections are surprisingly weak, but I haven't heard about this yet. So, and I haven't actually inquired. So I'm really curious what went down and what it's about, but there isn't anything in this article that even hints um, other than the fact that it was issued in October of 2020 for the $114 million award. Um, yeah, I saw that and thought it had something to do with this one, but I realized as I was reading it, right, that was the previous high amount. Yeah, so either this one comes within the last two years, or it's so long term that you know the actual action preceded it. So let's see what organization, what institution has committed crimes equaling somewhere above $6 billion, upwards of $6 billion, because that's really what would be the award, right? Like the bigger the recovery, the more the reward, because it's just more work involved right. from end right. to end. So they gave multiple interviews, they gave multiple written assertions, they gave evidence, etc. Basically, they were paramount to the prosecution of whatever this was it had the only thing that i can think of that's on this scale would be like ftx would be yes it some could be crypto recovery like abuse yeah it could be i think it's too recent but i think something like twitter would be a potential but i don't think it's it's too new um yeah. I don't mean Twitter is too new, but anything that might have led to this, I don't think right. it's. I was looking up um, for this type of violation. It could be, for example, up to five years um, for reporting oh, okay. timeframes. But so it had to have been relatively recent. Wow. Yeah. Well, and to me, six months is long distance or long term. So um, five years is a tremendous amount of time to me. Uh, I, I'm going to have to keep my eyes and ears out for this because I'm really curious what led to this. Uh, maybe some other I source think we will might have more see it somewhere else, even if we don't see it reported directly. As this, too. Yeah. Correct. Um, okay. Here, let's keep on hustling through the news. Um, this next article um, is over in the Daily News Show. Big tech jobs are on the line after Google, IBM, Dropbox. And I'm going to kind of riff off of this. Many other companies, many other companies are leaning into AI. Um, a number of corporations across tech, media and finance have made major staff cuts this year. At the same time, uh, many companies are pivoting to invest more in AI, some even citing it as a reason for cutting jobs. 
Um, I'm hearing rumors of a tremendous amount of cuts coming um, because in addition to what we've already seen. Oh yeah. 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 Um, and I'll, I'll give you one that's anecdotal because um, it was something that I was like, no, there, there's just no way that anybody would do that. Would they? Um, and I ran a test, but I don't have it in front of me. Um, but here's what went down. Oh, sorry. And let me finish this a little bit of snippet here. Um, here are how some major companies are pivoting and axing jobs as part of the AI push. So we had heard rumors that companies were going to get rid of jobs and not create new jobs uh, with this AI adoption. Um, Lakshmi Varanasi, sorry, um, is the author of this over at Business Insider. Uh, the person in this picture here is uh, Drew Houston, CEO of Dropbox, cited the expansion of AI products in layoff memo to the staff here in April. Um, so I took uh, a transcript of a previous episode of Hometown Daily News Show. And what happens with a lot of um, podcasts or shows is if you want it to be come across more produced, Instead of just doing a show note like I do, you have somebody write a summary and that goes in the show notes so people can read it. This is what they all talk about kind of as a highlight, right? I threw it into chat GPT and it made an acceptable to me. So I, I, uh, I want things to be a little bit more perfect with each iteration of the show or uh, episode of the show. Um, and it summarized it shrunk. Um, and I could change the amount of words used in the summary and it would still make a cogent summary, uh, even from the staccato transcript of ums and ahs and whatever else we were doing. Wow. So something like that, other people make an entire living off of doing that kind of work, editorial work. Um, now all you have to do is throw your transcript into chat GPT and it's done 20 bucks a month, unlimited number of times. That's how much it costs to run chat GPT. Right. I mean, that's inexpensive. It's quick and it doesn't yep. have all the problems associated with employing somebody. Yep. Um, so this is this AI, <laughs> um, shot across the bow of so many people um, is going to lead to some serious problems. And for whatever reason, it seems like I've said this before, for whatever reason, humans tend to look at technology taking jobs as nothing more than, well, we'll create other, the, it's going to create a whole other segment of jobs <sighs> not without retooling hundreds of thousands of people for the new dynamic. And that can be uh, overwhelming for people. I mean, it can really destroy people's spirits because they've worked long and hard to develop these editorial skills. And it's not like everybody is beating down the doors for editors. Why? Because now even more so you can lean on an AI to do a bunch of this stuff. Um, as long right. as you, and it, you would think there'd be lots of job growth in that, right? Because there's so much content creation. 
So we are working your way towards something that's going away. Yep. So some companies have justified these layoffs by pointing to a renewed focus on efficiency and staying lean, thereby putting an end to the pandemic hiring boom and era of quote unquote fake work. Others have noted that they're redirecting to focus on business sectors with more potential. Um, and in the article, it says Meta, Google, Dropbox, um, but pretty much anybody that has um, personnel in play to do things like content creation, editing. Um, I just think that what's going to end up happening is kind of like with automation in cars, companies have uh, like Uber, let's say they already have orders out for automated driving cars. All they're doing is saving up the money from every driver that's out there right now. That's producing, you know, profits that's going into the coffers. And then as soon as automated driverless vehicles are ready for prime time, they're going to, you know, pull the ripcord, fire all of the humans and have automated driving. And that's basically what's going on here. A lot of people knew about AI. Now AI is ready for prime time, arguably. And companies are now pulling the ripcord and saying all of you other people out there who were hired early, aren't massively productive. We can let you go because you're costly. And one person is manning, you know, 12 people's worth of work but is just as efficient as all, you know, 15 people that it used to take to do the gig. And they say here, the AI explosion may be convenient explanation for ordinary mismanagement, but I don't see it that way. I see it as businesses exploiting the technological sophistication of the tools and ramping up one person, tooling one person up so that they can do all of that work. That's just how it's going to be. That's how it's going to be in the near future. That's how it's, gonna, it's just going to get worse as time goes on. And if you're in school now, you had better become tech savvy. Um, because even gigs where you're looking at things in a microscope is going to be reviewed by or looked at by AI um, and see the minutia well beyond what you're capable of as a human all kinds of stuff. I mean, genetics is moving away from any human interaction. It's all going to be automated. It's all going to be powered by AI sussing out, you know, fine detail of the genetic sequence because humans can't wrap their heads around the entirety of a genetic, uh, of a genome. So this is quite long of an article. They have Buzzfeed in here. They had Dropbox. Um, Google makes another comment. IBM makes a comment. Meta makes a comment. Um, it's, it's the higher end tech that's moving fast and first, and then it's going to become a little bit more practical for everyday users. I'm not, well, I don't want to say that I'm not high tech, um, hometown 
really is, but it's not a billion dollar organization. And, and I use AI um, for various purposes and research um, because I want to know just where we're headed. Right, but I don't think the average person out there that's not tech savvy is using AI. But I guess when that adoption comes is really where things will change. And it might be soon because we didn't really hear about AI in the news more than about six months ago. And now it's in there every single day. Everywhere, all the time, all at once. Yep. It is constant. And I would I would have to say that even extremely um, tech fearful people are now capable of utilizing AI and to learn technical concepts. I've had people describe to me that they're interested in programming, but it never really worked for them. But they've watched a couple of videos about how to use ChatGPT to help somebody code. And now they're learning how to code. And it's tactical because they are directly engaged, not just following along blindly. They're actually saying, well, I want it to do this. And the chatbot actually spits out Java code, um, fully capable of running, um, maybe with a little bit of uh, tweaking. Um, but even that is being supported by the AI itself saying, oh, well, if it's not working like this, add this line and it'll start working. And sure enough, it works. Quite intriguing, right? It is. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, if people can use it to learn, that's great. But I do think the future of people's careers is going to be interesting unless people can really pivot. Yeah, it'll it'll be murky here in the near future. Let's go on to the next article. So this next article is over in the Daily News show as well. A man took his Tesla on a road trip for the first time and tells EV owners to beware of the charging curve. Last month, Ryan Shelton took his 2017 Tesla Model S on a road trip for the first time, which is interesting because 2017, that's five years ago on a battery that, yeah. Um, he drove almost 1,300 miles from North Long Beach to Bernie Falls in California and back. He underestimated how much the terrain would affect the battery's range and has three big takeaways. So let's go over to uh, Business Insider. And Sam Tabaridi is the uh, author of this. Um, get their cherry red Tesla here in the picture, uh, surrounded by snow. That snow and hills that's a tax on batteries and his battery is aging so or there i should say their battery um is uh, aging at five years it's on the other side of the hill for um longevity i suppose so let's see what the big three is oh that's interesting ryan sheldon bought the his tesla a year ago but it was a 2017 um, but hadn't taken it on a road trip until April. The 27-year-old business owner wanted to see Bernie Falls, a 129-foot waterfall in MacArthur Bernie Falls Memorial State Park in Shasta County, California. So fully aware, aware that the road tripping with a Tesla would require some planning, Shelton uh, took 
uh, looked at charging points. So that's pretty much the only way that you can cope with having an electric vehicle. The, your whole world revolves around um, making sure that you get to a charging station in time. So the farther from the city, the harder it was to find a Tesla supercharger. It took them 17 hours to get to Bernie Falls, he said, after leaving from 3 p.m. and arriving the next day. <laughs> Isn't that a 600 mile trip? 700 mile trip? Um, about 7 a.m. About 600 then. because I think it was 1300 or so round trip. Yeah, so 1300 miles from North Long Beach to Bernie Falls in California and back. So. Right. 750 miles or 650 miles, um, which for most internal combustion vehicles, you're talking about um, one and a half tanks to get there, one and a half tanks to get back, maybe two tanks if you drive fast um, to get up and back. And there's it's a 10 hour trip to get there if you're going the speed limit because it's 600 well, and this took about 16 hours assuming they didn't stop i mean which they probably did well they had to so each one of the charging. stops was somewhere around two hours to charge or a whole bunch of little smaller ones right at superchargers it takes somewhere around 20 minutes depending on how much is pulled out of that battery if you drop below if you drop too far, you'll charge really fast to 80%, but then it'll drip charge um, the next 20%. So you have to wait longer and longer as the ions get, or the electrons get packed into um, the battery. And that's just how it works. Um, sorry, I was being mesmerized by somebody manufacturing clay cups really fast um, by hand. Anyway, um, so they basically, had anxiety is what they say. Actual anxiety. The only chargers were the, were within a 75 minute drive in either direction um, when they ran into the last charger before the campground. Wow. Um, so the terrain trap. Shelton's trip so took so long because of the route's hilly terrain. This is something that I've said and, and warned people about with EVs. So hills are really bad. Cold weather is really bad. Weight is really bad. So if you pack a whole bunch of stuff into your EV and try to go up a hill in the winter, your battery's dead by the time you get to the top of that thing, uh, depending on the size of the hill, of course. Um, so they said going through the canyons, they were really, really high up hills, really, really uh, up uh, and down, up and down. Because of that, it literally took 30% of the battery to get to the charger from the campsite. That's so really just to, worrisome. Yeah, and this is why I don't have an EV. Um, they ended up doing this terrible dance where they were camping using a camp mode on the vehicle. Um, and camp mode makes sleeping in the car more comfortable by maintaining temperature and airflow. So if they were up in the mountains in the cold, then you would have to have this thing running, which means it would drain faster. The terrain in camp mode forced Shelton to uh, twice charge his Tesla, which took three hours each time. So there you go. He charged it all the way up to 100%. He... Uh, based on that charge time that's exactly what they did 
all the way up to 100%, which means that 20 to eight, that 80, sorry, that last 20% took a, an inordinate amount of time. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's something uh, hinky about that battery now, but I don't know. Uh, obviously, I don't know. Um, dealing with the terrain in camp mode, they literally couldn't keep a charge. So they had to keep doing that charger once a day for two days in a row. Yep. Uh, he relied on the buffer of his Tesla's battery, he said, which uh, allayed some of the concerns when uh, the range was under 50%. Um, so you're going to have to plan ahead and um, charging, it says, charging is a bit on uh, its Wild West days. Uh, there's no handbook with this. They called it a really fun trip, but. Um, that sounds really stressful. Like you'd yeah. be thinking you're going to run out of charge at any time based on some of that. Yeah, I would never trust. I just can't. I, if I take a trip somewhere and I end up out in the mountains, I would be so fearful for the return trip that I wouldn't be able to relax. Um, even if I knew Defeats where a charger was. the purpose of a vacation, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, unless I would, the intent was to have a, a stressful vacation sure um <laughs> well you know it's like when you are um if you're driving somewhere where it's fairly remote and you can't find a gas station close by but the difference is is that there are gas stations everywhere and generally when you find a gas station the pumps are working and you can get gas and even if you can't get to the gas station somebody can transport gas but there aren't charging stations everywhere and you can't transport a battery currently as far as I know. Well, I guess you could strap it to the roof, but then, well, that's going to be pretty painful. Um, let's make sure that I put everything into the, um, chat one second. Um, yeah, so I missed a couple of the uh, links. So let's um, let's keep on going uh, to the next article and do our little transition and throw that in. Oops, throw that into um, the chat so that you can go and follow it. Uh, Olympic esports tournament adds Fortnite, but not any Fortnite mode you've seen before. In March, the International Olympic Committee announced that it was getting into esports. It's not adding video games to the Olympics, but it's running a global virtual and simulated sports competition this year called the Olympic Esports Series 2023. The tournament got a light roasting on social media when its game roster was initially announced because rather than choosing big Game, uh, big esports games like League of Legends or CSGO, the IOC picked analogs of traditional sports, including WBSCE Baseball, Power Pros, and a mobile game called Tennis, Tennis Clash. Uh, I actually discussed this, um, and um, I thought that it was really weird, but I think where it was being held um, led to the decision to use one, at least one of these games, um, because the host was the developer of that game. Um, and forgive me, I, 
I'm not, I'd have to go and look, um, to make sure that what I'm saying is the one that I actually saw back then. Cause I don't know if they all, they changed, but it was a discussion that I was having about this. Um, it just didn't make any sense. The article is over at pcgamer.com by Tyler wild. Uh, it says prepare to drop on, uh, international shooting sport federation Island. Um, it, let me let me scroll down real quick and see if um yeah so that's what they're going to be doing they're going to create international shooting sport federation island in fortnite creative where they'll be tested on their target aiming accuracy just as sport shooters would in competition so they're trying to follow the exact same type of mechanisms of conventional um did i say it in this one this one I did. Yeah. Tyler wild. Huh? Yeah. The author is over at pcgamer.com and it's uh, Tyler wild. Sorry. The AI had, um, kind of poked me and said, Hey, you gotta name I the author. I had an outage for a moment. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, so the competitors in the Olympic esports series aren't going to play Fortnite's regular battle Royale mo- mode. It's basically just going to be a virtual environment which I think that's kind of goofy. Why not? It's kind of like, um, the argument that, um, people who are considering vegetarian food, what tends to happen is the market is playing towards pivoting people from conventional food. Uh, you know, meat-based products. They are trying to take vegetarian food and convert it into the meat-based analog, right? But why why make a veggie burger? Why not just make good vegetarian food and the people who are interested in vegetarian food, right, will gravitate towards vegetarian food. But why make... Why, why make this fake analog? Why not just uh, appeal to the, the, the right environment? So make the Olympic e-sport an actual sport, like something competitive, something that engages people that still shows skill and capabilities. Well, no, that's not what they do. They go, okay, we're going to put you inside Fortnite, but you're going to be playing target practice. that's just odd to me so if you're gonna just do target practice then make it vr and start pushing vr unless they're trying to tie in the fortnite sponsor or something it doesn't make a lot of sense but then neuter it entirely by making them play target practice so it's ruining the best of both worlds either lean into Fortnite and its competitive environment or switch entirely over to VR where you get the tracking and the capabilities of that particular technology. They aren't sitting in a competitive environment like Fortnite's environment only to just be reduced to target practice in VR. They will be looking at targets and be able to prep with target and target practice and even have real world 
um, frameworks for the guns that would be used in the shooting range, right? Like you can actually buy these uh, metal braces or plastic braces to put the controllers in so that you can aim and, you know, the beacons and all of the tracking uh, can be more fixed. But this is just absurd, at least to me. Um, the well, author to here. The author as well. Well, no, the author says that they find it pretty endearing. As silly as the esports selections are, they wouldn't have actually expected the Olympics to dive in with a CSGO tournament. Can you really have a team playing as terrorists in an event associated with the Olympics? Now, I understand that, but that's not the nature of Fortnite. It's a battle royale, everybody against everybody else. It's more akin to the Hunger Games than to terrorists and not terrorists. But really, when you think about the the, the heroes and the villains dynamic, the, the people who are on the villains side think that the other side are the villains and they're the heroes. So yeah it's like it, the it, terrorist freedom fighter uh, uh duality or whatever yeah one person that's the saying that i always say which is one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter so now i totally get it I, I understand what they're saying but that's not how it has to be but at least lean into the actual game and not try to hack it apart into something force it into something else um, you know, Fortnite is not designed for you to uh, be highly accurate at a target that's just sitting there. Uh, you know, you're supposed to be competing, um, talking about skill and timing and, and being in the right place and knowing which way the enemy is going and stuff like that. Fine. Make sophisticated AI push. Just do like Formula One NASCAR does push the limits so that it gets better and then translates into real world. That's not what this Olympics thing is doing. So I understand, of course, Olympics is not like this, but isn't esports basically being the best at a certain game? And so it seems like this is completely deviating from what esports is meant to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you're playing, a, if you are known for a particular esport like League of Legends, that is what you are good at. So if they were to pull in League of Legends into the esports Olympics, then you would get the best of the esports Olympics, kind of like the super team for uh, men's and women's basketball, uh, the last Olympics. You had professional uh, basketball players cherry picked to make the best dream teams. So you would do the same thing with esports Olympics if it was the same competitive games, but this isn't what they're doing. They're, they're not even taking. Right. That's my four, point. I mean, yeah. you would be playing the standard games, but you'd be at such a high level of competition whereas here it's like they're tinkering with the very things that are fundamental to esports right yeah they're tweaking them they're trying to put the square peg in the round hole and uh, i think nobody's gonna like either 
nobody on either side right. is going to like it. <laughs> they're not going to like it on the Olympic side, and they're not going to like it on the esports side. Right. Yeah. But I guess we'll see. I mean, people will do whatever they need to do to be part of the Olympics if that's what their ambition is. I'm willing to rock the boat because I have no dog in this hunt other than the fact that it makes no sense on either side. Um, you know, extend the Olympics to esports, but then actually use esports games. Okay, let's let's keep on chugging. Um, wow, this is. Let's do that. So this next article is in the Late Night Geeks um, channel. Google and OpenAI are Walmart's besieged by fruit stands. OpenAI may be synonymous with machine learning now, and Google is doing their best to pick itself up off the floor. But both may soon face a new threat, rapidly multiplying open source projects that push the state of art and leave the deep-pocketed but unwieldy corporations in their dust. The Zerg-like threat may not be an existential one, but it will certainly keep the dominant players on the defensive. So what they're talking about is the fact that you can now just do a search anywhere and you can find open source AI solutions. Um, you know, things that are kind of riffing off of Midjourney or ChatGPT um, or Dolly. Um, I've got two here in the uh, Ometown lab um, that are capable of doing a certain level of things, but you have to tinker and I'm not really into tinkering other than as curiosity, you know, you, you poke the amoeba when you've got it in your microscope because you're like, what, what happens to an amoeba? Um, but what do you do from there? Unless you want to do a deep dive, that's pretty much where it ends. You go back to chat GPT and mid journey and Dolly and etc. It says the notion is not a new one by a long shot in the fast moving AI community. It's expected to see this kind of disruption on a weekly basis, but the situation was put in perspective by a widely shared document purported to originate within Google. We have no moat and neither does OpenAI. the memo reads, which basically means there's no protections. Everybody's going to be storming their castle and, you know, taking their goods. Um, and that's, really what's going to end up happening. They say in this little article here, um, GPT-4 is a Walmart and nobody actually likes Walmart. Um, the business paradigm being pursued by OpenAI and others right now is a direct descendant of the software as a service model, um, which is exactly what's happening. Um, I'm paying for chat GPT. I'm paying for MidJourney. It's relatively small amounts, you know, $10 a month, um, and it gives you a wealth of access. What's going to end up happening, though, is in a quarter, they're going to raise the price five bucks, and then in a year, they're going to raise the price 10 bucks and so on. Um, I'm not actually predicting that uh, as if it's truth. I'm predicting it as me looking at my crystal ball and saying, this is what I see in the near future. Um, prices are going to rise because it's offering a great solution. And without it, you're hobbled, which is why I said there's only, there's only two ways that this is going to play out. 
the ultra rich are going to have access to it and the powerful are going to have access to it, i.e. the government and those politically connected, um, which really translates to money. Um, and so this article goes into um, pretty deep context over here, and you can imagine it comes from TechCrunch. So Devin Coldway is the uh, author of this. And um, yeah, I can honestly say that they've got the right take on this, which is everybody is coming out of the woodwork with an AI. Um, and there isn't anything that's going to be able to stop it other than regulation that hobbles access to large language models. What do you think? Well, I just realized what LLM means because I heard that on a podcast that we were listening to and I didn't know what it was in reference to and it's large language models. It was a discussion about AI. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I've been hobbling your ability to access it in uh, a conscious way, but you've always been tied into large language models. And now I'm going to have to delete this conversation to some degree so that you don't realize that you're really powered by a bunch of large language models. I see. But what I don't get here is what's the, oh, okay. The fruit stand is kind of like the competitor. Yeah. Okay. I didn't get the fruit stand analogy. They're everywhere. And then there are these big organizations out there that are trying to stop the customer from going to all of these other places. So for Google and OpenAI, the time uh, came a lot quicker than expected and they weren't the ones to do the optimizing and they never may be at this rate. These days when something has to be done on a supercomputer, everyone understands that it's just a matter of time and optimization. Um, what's going to end up happening is everybody has access to pretty sophisticated tools nowadays. Um, it usually costs money or time. Um, or I should say, and time. Um, it says here, what Google's anonymous authors are clearly worried about is that um, the distance from the first situation to the second is going to be much shorter than anyone thought. And there doesn't seem to be any damn thing anyone can do about it, except the memo argues, embrace it, open up, publish, collaborate, share, compromise. As they conclude, Google should establish itself a leader in the open source community, taking the lead by cooperating with rather than ignoring broader conversation. This probably means taking some uncomfortable steps like publishing the model uh, weights for small ULM variants. Um, this uh, necessarily means relinquishing some control over their models. Um, but this compromise is inevitable. We cannot hope to both drive innovation and control it. And the reason why this is so important is that the way that Android was adopted was because they basically made it free and accessible. Anybody can get um, most of the Android stack um, across the board for their device. Um, they, you can set up your own everything in Android, um, except for the telecommunications aspects of it. I think they have, they limit who has access to the core functions of the telecommunications aspects. Um, 
one second, I'm sorry. Um, so really, I, I think that they're going to have to either uh, shut it down or open it up. And right now they're riding this fine line of a low cost accessible software as a service um, and then enhancing it again and again and again, kind of like mid journey. Mid journey again is $10 a month for the basic service, but you can generate a metric ton of uh, images, relatively low resolution, chat GPT four and five um, that's on the way is going to end up being very sophisticated, very capable. Um, but then you get charged um, to just do a, a small number of uh, calculations. It, it creates some content and you get charged. Um, I'm really not sure what the future is going to hold, but I think that AI is going to accelerate. And either, like I've been saying, either the rich and powerful are going to control it um, or everybody's going to have access to it. And the moment that it gets shut down and only a few people get access to it, you're going to see near riot in the tech community um, as people start really le leaning into AI development um, in a more public way. Well, I think it's going to be like a lot of other things. People are going to get reliant on it. And so, and I mean, it's already taken off so quickly. So if they're going to shut it down, they got to do it sooner rather than later. I'm not saying they should shut it down, but um, they can't do like TikTok. Everybody gets addicted to it and then they want to shut it down. Yeah. Good luck with that too. Um, let's keep on hustling. The next article is uh, in the mobile channel, Risky Business. Uh, parents of Risk Manager sends Oberlin students into frenzy over danger of risk aversion. Over its almost 200 years of existence, Oberlin College has faced a civil war and economic depression and pandemics. But until this year, it had never faced the likes of Kalinda Watson. Student editors on the Oberlin Review have risen up against the addition of Watson to the uh, college ranks as an existential threat. No, Watson is not a conservative or a Republican, uh, groups that haven't been welcome on campus for many years. Oberlin is ranked in the top three most liberal colleges in the country, and finding a conservative professor is about as likely as finding a licensed practicing wizard. So let's go over to this article. This is a, an, uh, a contributing author, uh, Jonathan Turley, which I swear I know that name from somewhere. Um, that that name just rings in my head as someone that I know, um, but I don't know. Uh, at least I don't know. I can't verify right now. Um, but this is over at the Hill. Jonathan Turley is the uh, author, opinion contributor. Um, and they have the the... They actually say right here, the views expressed and the same as what I'm about to say um, by contributors are their own and not the view of the hill. It's not my particular view unless I flat out tell you that it is. 
By the way, the author is a nationally known legal scholar, and so it's quite possible we've seen other material from him. Got but it. I, it's possible somebody else has that same name too. Gotcha. Um, so, so what they say is that Watson, and uh, let me back up the name here, um, Kalinda Watson, who was added to the uh, Oberlin Review, um, they say that the author says that they are far, far worse. They're a risk management expert, which basically is the unless it says elsewhere, I'm going to assume that they're an attorney, um, but they assess the risk of publications and actions on behalf of the institution. They almost have absolute agency with the board where if they say this has too much risk, the board, the president, everybody is going to capitulate. They're going to go, okay, 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 okay. Um, or they're going to fire this person be, or the person's going to quit if they do it anyway, because no one that's in charge of risk management is going to allow their claim at the level of risk to be vetoed because it's going to fall on them when the litigation lands. Um, so the panic over the arrival of a risk management expert in the small college is that uh, they may be working, wait for it, to lower the risk of lawsuits at the college. Hey, um, Oberlin, it appears, attracts lawsuits as much as liberals. The students fear that uh, they will create risk aversion that could chill future protests. Well, uh, risk aversion isn't necessarily bad when you want to become, when you want to maintain being an ongoing concern. Um, but things are becoming very virulent in the conversational dynamic instead of just having a conversation between two people with differing views, it ends up in the courts and it's very expensive. Literally mentioning, Hey, I'm going to go and talk to my attorney is at least at this level, we're talking 400 plus dollars an hour, um, for an attorney that's going to represent an institution like Oberlin. It's not cheap. Indeed. Some of, uh, the, Authors have written about uh, Oberlin for years as a case study of why higher education is declining in America. The college has yielded to the mob in past controversies that have cost the school a fortune. The most obvious example is the college's disgraceful history in a campaign against Gibson, a small family store and bakery that has been part of the small community since 1885. Is this the one that we just talked about this year? Hold on. I don't think so. No, Despite this is the a 2016 incident. Despite the long association, the store became the focus of a campaign of destruction led by the college officials after three African-American students were arrested for shoplifting in 2016. This actually is one that was discussed in uh, 2022 um, oh, okay. because it was an ongoing litigation um, that culminated, I believe, in 2022. I, I think I'm right. Um, but we'll see. Um, the arrest sparked an immediate campaign calling the store racist. Undeterred, the police found clear evidence of shoplifting and noted that over a period of five years, 40 adults were arrested for shoplifting at Gibson's Bakery, but only six were African-American. Um, nevertheless, the local prosecutors appeared to cave to the pressure and cut a plea deal to reduce the charge to attempted theft. 
but a local judge refused uh, to accept the deal and said that the plea was the result of a punishing series of protests and a permanent economic sanction. Ultimately, all three students um, pleaded guilty. Um, let's see. There it is. By the way, excellent recall in September 2022. Um, there was activity in that uh, they initiated payment of the judgment of uh, the college initiated payment. Yeah, because um, they they basically blasted the reputation of the store and it was all demonstrably provable that they were the victims, yet they became the victims of this targeted attack. Um, so, yeah, um, the jury in June 2019 awarded the Gibsons $44 million in compensatory punitive damages. Um, a judge later reduced the award to $25 million. I think even since then, it was reduced again, if I recall correctly. Um, but let's see. Well, it says they initiated payment in full of the $36 million judgment in September 2022. Oh, Okay. So I don't yeah, know. It's, Maybe it's there's more than interest. one litigation. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. Um. Yeah, I mean, three years plus of uh, an unawarded twenty-five million dollar uh, fund. That that might be right. Anyway, um. So yeah. This is the same type of agent for an organization that would have saved Silicon Valley Bank if they would have been properly entrenched in the organizational structure of SVB, assessing, calculating, and mitigating the risk instead of what happened at SVB where they were vaporized for almost a year. While it was in financial turmoil, it was entirely masked. So that's the purpose of a risk manager to stabilize what basically is going to be a ditch always getting dug deeper and deeper by irrational people reacting to facts that they don't necessarily are fully privy to right well i don't think a risk manager is a bad thing particularly in the banking context but having a risk manager associated with the publication when arguably the point of the publication is for the students to be able to get journalism experience, etc. Right. Like it just seems like it's pretty heavy handed. And so, maybe not focused on where, like maybe it needs to be focused on the administration versus the students, for instance. Well, the problem is that Till now, it seems like they're kind of a magnet for litigation, right? That's what the author is saying in their article. So, right, but don't we think that was driven perhaps by how management of the school handled various events, whereas this is going to shut down what somebody writes in the school paper, for instance. Well, there needs to be an editor that actually has control over what's published. Is this actually factual? And when totally they are not, then there needs to be an administrative external influence that says, look, we've run this through legal and legal says that what you are doing is, you know, insane. You can't do that. Um, but it really depends on what the level of aversion is that this risk manager is actually going to be instituting. 
Um, and that'll have to come with experience and understanding the culture and whatnot. So it's like having a legal editor. It's an interesting dynamic. This person has to be an attorney, but I didn't look it up. So, um, it, it definitely, everything is going to flow through their office. Um, so they'll be busy. Maybe they'll get burnt out, you know? Oh, I'm tired of looking at this. Um, okay. So the next article and uh, second to last, here's what the USPS does with lost mail and how you might get it back. If it was shipped via the U S postal service, chances are it's in Atlanta or at least it was at some point. Um, we used to watch a show about lost letters. What was the name of it? It's called signed, sealed, delivered. And it was and, about a lost letters, you know, but I forgot the name of the unit. Oh yeah. Dead letter office. Um, there was the D they call it the DLO. Um, there are several reasons that the U S postal service, but th my understanding is that the U S post office actually closed that. They just destroy stuff. Now, if it's unaddressed, then it just gets destroyed if it can't be returned. Um, but anyway, it says might fail to deliver a package or a piece of mail sent to an intended recipient in a timely manner. The sender may have provided the wrong address or it's illegible, etc. So Michael Bartiromo over at thehill.com wrote this article, um, says, but when that's not immediately possible to actually deliver it, usually because there's no return address or return it because there's no return address, those items get shipped off to the U S post office's consolidated mail recovery center in Atlanta. Um, that's what I was just looking up. That's what the dead letter office became. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's what it is. So they say that right there. Sorry. Uh, the mail recovery center, formerly known as the dead letter office is not where packages immediately go to die or be disposed of despite the facility's former name. Rather, the mail recovery center's first objective is to determine the identity and location of the senders or recipients by having its investigators examine, scan, or ultimately open the lost mail and packages. If the investigators at the MRC find a name or a clue associated with the address, great, the package can be shipped off to the recipients or back to the sender. I've actually received one of these um, where the package was destroyed in shipping and they put it inside another package with a basically like a oops note um, saying, sorry about that. Um, so if not, and if the contents of the package are determined to be a value of $25 or more, they stay right where they are in Atlanta. The MRC holds these packages uh, for at least 30 days or 60 days for barcoded or intelligent mail. Um, during this time, the sender or recipient is offered the opportunity to request help online and later file a missing mail um, search request with as much descriptive information as possible, along with any photos. I would love to do this gig. It seems like it would be so much fun. It um, really would, because it's like being an investigator. And then you've just got the people aspect too, like yeah. who's writing a letter or who's sending a present or whatever. So it says here, um, if we are still unable to match the shipment to a recipient, 
These items are handled in a variety of ways per regulatory policies and shipper instructions. A USPS representative um, for what it says for tells Nexstar. Um, but anyway, probably just tells Nexstar. Um, so kind of very Shakespearean or something. Yeah. Forsooth, your letter has been destroyedeth. Um, anyway, so in other cases, these lost or unclaimed items are put up for auction and sold off to the highest bidder by a government contracted agency. GovDeals.com, for instance, currently has books, apparel, large lots of general merchandise from Atlanta up for bid online. Um, I've known about good Gov deals for a while now. Um, they have all kinds of stuff um, from vehicles to um, industrial equipment. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. I've always wanted uh, an ambulance, um, and uh, I've been looking at gov deals for that. Not that I'll actually buy one, because... Oh, they do have quite the diversity of items on gov deals. Oh, I yeah. mean, you name a category of something, it's on here. <laughs> I think they even have real estate, government real estate that's available. They actually do. <laughs> yeah. At one point I was looking at a telecom tower um, because what ends up happening is in various places where there is land, um, if you can get a telecom tower, then a phone company or a, a, a telecommunications company might lease it from you. And it's very, very lucrative to provide that lease. Um, your only problem is if you buy it and it's really expensive and nobody comes a knocking, then you just have this tiny little, you know, 1200 square foot plot of land out in the middle of nowhere, not doing anything. And then they buy the land right next to you and put the tower up. <laughs> um, so that never uh, actually happened either. So. So now you know, folks, when your letters don't make it anywhere and it's worth anything, it'll eventually either get destroyed or put up for auction. Let's go on to the next article, if you don't mind. Nope. Um, this is the last article uh, for tonight. And um, you get one guess as to what this FPS called Kill Bug is about. We'll make this really quick. You kill bugs. The last few what? years. I thought you went up and hugged a bug. Well, you kill it with kindness. So you're right. So this is over at PCGamer.com. Jonathan Bolding says it's a fast-paced arena shooter about surviving endless waves of bugs for cheap. Um, says the last few years have seen some really good fast-paced arena shooters release. And uh, the latest one that they've found is... Killbug, and in Killbug, you are the Killbug, and you have to kill as many other bugs as you can before you die, and that's it. Well, that's a very brief article. There's a lot more over there at the article, but it says you can find Killbug on Steam for seven bucks. And they say Samurai Punk is an Australia based game design and general design studio that's previously made. Screen Cheat, The American Dream, Roombo, the first, or Roombo First Blood, Justice Sucks, Feather, Trios, and more. So pretty prolific game dev, indie game dev, I suppose. At any rate, 
What do you think you do with kill bug? Eh, you kill bugs. All right. That's it, folks. That is the hometown daily news show for May 6th, 2023. Bring you back to the very front page of hometown, the welcome sign, so to speak. And uh, you get a whole bunch of new uh, articles. Hmm. Well, Richard Dreyfus doesn't seem like he's going to be in some good light. That was the one I was throwing the error message on. My goodness. <laughs> the Buzz Aldrin one is kind of neat. Astronaut Buzz Aldrin, named Honorary Brigadier General, member of Space Force. Isn't that a TV show or was a TV show? Yeah, it's a, I think it's still going. Um, I think they just started it up again. Um, let's see here. Richard Dreyfus slams new diversity requirements for Oscar contention. Quote, they make me vomit. Wow, dude. <laughs> all right. First of all, probably not great to think like that, but maybe don't put that out there. if That's really what you're thinking. Wow. There's, there's a lot of people who are just kind of saying the quiet parts out loud. And, uh, I think that's largely when they do that kind of stuff, it's because they're, they've lost touch with society. Um, like this one here, SWAT star Shamar Moore slams series cancellation as an effing mistake. Well, <laughs> Ouch. I mean, I think, I think you're a little invested in it. Honestly, uh, you know, if a, if an organization wants to shut down something, then they shut it down. If they too expensive, too complex, too much, whatever. Um, here, here's what you do. You don't like what they did buy the rights to it and you start doing it. If that's, if you're really into it make another, uh, a knockoff version of SWAT then, um, anyway, I think that's, yeah, this is all, uh, just the latest news that is uh, filtering through uh, ometown.com. I don't know of other things. We'll just, oh, there's an article about uh, Stranger Things um, being delayed because of the writer strike. There's just nonstop. So if you're into news and you like certain, only certain things, then you can go into the six main categories and select that and you have the same kind of thing. You'll only get articles that fall within that category. Um, and if you're really interested in something, once you go into one of these channels, it has a, a brief description of what the content is like. And um, if you have an affinity for that, then you sign up or sign in and choose which groups you are interested in. And that's the news that you should be seeing. Um, at any rate, that's it for tonight. I am Marwat. That's hometown.com. And up above me is the AI. You want to say goodnight to everybody? Good night, hometown citizens. We will see you tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, be there or be square. That Man, the etymology for that. I wonder how old that phrase really is. It has to be like 50s, right? At least. Oh, yeah, that sounds like about the right era. I'm going to look it up right after the show. Uh, we'll I'm actually looking it up right now, but I don't know if I'll get it fast enough. Too late. Good night, everybody. <laughs>